I'm super glad to see you this morning, and I hope you have your Bible with you, and that you'll open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 is where we are. Uh, last week, we came to the end of the body of the letter uh, that we've been looking at since the first week in 2022. Uh, I was looking back through my notes. We started this week one of 2022, so we've been in it about eight and a half months, and uh, we came to the end of the body of the letter last week. This letter from Pastor Peter to the chosen ones who were scattered all over Asia Minor, who are living as strangers and aliens in that land. I told you that we noticed that he does not end the body of the letter with a final call to action. Uh, it's not a final exhortation. It's a final promise. Um, it's not an imperative command to be obeyed. It's an indicative statement of fact that should serve to encourage us in the present, serve to encourage us to give us hope for the future, and to inspire worship. We saw that he ended with this doxology, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The text we looked at last week, every phrase was packed with significance, and I hope that as it served to encourage those Christians in the first century, that it also served to encourage your hearts last week as we studied it. I'll remind you of the applications from last week. Number one, you will suffer for a little while. Um, that might not sound super encouraging, but brothers and sisters, it will only be for a little while. It will only be for a little while that we will suffer. But the truth of the matter is, friends who are gathered amongst us, friends uh, that we see at work and at school, maybe who sit at our supper table even, friends who do not know Jesus will not just suffer here for a little while. They will suffer for eternity apart from him under the wrath of God for their sins. So we want to pray that God will open their eyes and their ears to the beauty of the gospel as we preach the gospel to them, as we declare the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ in the cross, on the cross in our place. Uh, we want to declare his goodness so that the suffering will just be for a little while. We also talked about how God fulfills all of his promises. He gives us real-time tastes of his strength and his deliverance in our lives. And when we get those, we should appreciate them and delight in them that he will see us through but the fullness is yet to come. The fullness of our deliverance is yet to come. And all of this should lead us to praise the Lord, to worship him, to him, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We want to get caught up in that kind of praise. Well, this week what we're going to see is the conclusion of the letter. And typically when we, when we look at the introduction of a biblical letter or the conclusion of a biblical letter, we are tempted just to uh, zoom right by. Uh, to check out as if these things are mere formalities, as if they bear no significance for us. Uh, but let me urge you right off the bat to fight against that today. Uh, fight against that today because just like last week, each phrase is packed. Each phrase is packed with important truth, and we're going to look at each of them closely. Plus, I think what we're going to see today includes the most difficult command to obey in the entire book, at least for me. It includes the most difficult command of the entire book to obey. This is going to be our last week in the text of 1 Peter. I told you we started at the very beginning of 2022. Next week, what we're going to do is some review of 1 Peter, and then we're going to introduce 2 Peter. We're going to just jump right into our study of 2 Peter next week, and so we'll get both, both halves of Peter's thought for the church. So let's read it together, and maybe you can guess which command is most difficult, in my opinion, to obey. Um, look at verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 12. God's word says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for all of the things you have shown us and taught us over the last eight and a half months in 1 Peter. Thank you for the ways you have challenged us. Thank you for the ways you have encouraged us. Thank you for the moments which were more timely than we could have ever planned. And by your spirit, we ask that you would remind us of the things we have already been taught. And as we finish this study, we ask that you would cause these lessons to stick with us, to go with us, not just for the next few weeks and then we forget about them, but cause these lessons to stick with us for the rest of our lives and impact the way we live until we see you face to face. We ask that you would continue to open our ears today as we seek to hear from you in your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you can see how uh, some of this seems like mere formality, just the structure of a letter, and we could just zip right through it. But there are important things, even in verse 12, where it says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. Let's talk for a minute about who this guy is. Who is Silvanus? Well, Silvanus, Silvanus is the long and the Latin form of the same name as Silas, right? So this guy that's mentioned here at the end of 1 Peter is the same guy, Silas, that we read about all throughout the New Testament. And this, this shortening of the name or the lengthening of the name is familiar to us. In fact, I know this well. Most all of you call me Chris, but my name is actually Christopher. Like if you look at my driver's license or my passport, it says Christopher. That's the long form version of my name. Short form is Chris. Silvanus, Silas, same guy. And we know Silas from the rest of the New Testament, particularly in Acts chapters 15 through Acts chapter 18. If you want to learn a lot about Silas, read Acts chapter 15 through Acts chapter 18, where he is mentioned 12 times. Just in that short section, he is mentioned 12 times. He's most often affiliated with Paul, not Peter. Most often he's connected with Paul, traveling around with him, riding along with him, but here we see him affiliated with Peter. And the lesson that I want us to learn from that is that there is unity. There is unity in the community of workers in the early church. Even as they seem to be going different directions sometimes, there is unity amongst these workers. As they seek to spread the gospel, as they seek to serve the Christians, they are together in that task. What was his role? So that's who Silvanus is. What was his role? Well, there's a huge debate, and it's really interesting, a raging debate amongst conservative evangelical authors about exactly what his role was in this letter. Some stake their claim on the fact that he was merely the courier of the letter. He merely carried it from where Peter wrote it to deliver it to be scattered amongst these believers in Asia Minor. And that argument is convincing because of the exact phrase that he uses um, to, to refer to Silvanus here that is used of other people who are obviously simply the couriers. They just carried the letter to be delivered. Other people, on the other hand, strongly argue that he was Peter's scribe, that he was Peter's secretary. In fact, there's a really um, like a technical biblical word for it, amanuensis, where Peter is basically dictating and Silas is writing it all down uh, according, according to what Peter has said, his amanuensis. And that argument is actually pretty convincing because of the polish of the language. 
Like, this is, this is really good Greek. It's really proper grammar. And a lot of people will say, no way, Peter. No way Peter wrote like this. No way Peter, the, the gruff fisherman, uh, the Galilean hillbilly, so to speak. No way that Peter wrote with this kind of polish. And so they say, oh, it was obviously Silas's influence that he was listening to Peter and he was putting it into proper grammar. Like, like, if, like if I was dictating something and, and Pastor Joe, uh, with all of his English background, irons out all my bad grammar and, and fixes all the problems. It would be like that. Um, so, so there are these two arguments, and they go on and on and on about it. And I think it's the most humorous thing to see so much ink spilled on such a trivial matter when there are two much bigger matters to, that we should notice with Silas. Number one, we should notice Peter's connection with Silas. We should notice that these two guys are together in the work that is being accomplished amongst these people. By the grace of God, Peter and Silas have become partners in the work of spreading the gospel and of tending to the flock of God, even as they're scattered about. They're together in this work. And their relationship is not merely a business relationship. It's not merely a matter of convenience that, oh, Silas happens to be traveling the direction where I need to send a letter, according to Pastor Peter. No. There's more to it than that because he calls him, notice in the text, he calls him our brother. Peter calls Silas our brother. Not just his brother, but our brother. There's a family connection. And what I want you to take away from that is that the gospel of God creates the family of God. And we're going to see that throughout this concluding portion of the text. The gospel of God that redeems us and saves us creates the family of God. It brings us together by the gospel. Not only are we reconciled to God, we are reconciled and connected to one another. And Peter takes that very seriously. Peter has a connection with Silas. That's super important. But it's also super important to see Peter's affirmation of Silas. Notice that Peter regards Silas not just as a brother but he vouches for him as a faithful brother. He doesn't just call him our brother. He calls him our faithful brother. And then there's this phrase, for so I regard him. I really do think of him that way. One scholar named Edmund Clowney says this, as a trusted brother of the apostle, he could interpret this brief letter. He goes on and says, it is natural that St. Peter should speak, here speak of him as trusty, one who knew the apostle's mind and could expound it faithfully. I think that's interesting, the way, the way he talks about the word faithful, our faithful brother, as trusty. And, and that's, a fair, that's a fair thing to do with the language, that, that Silas is a trusty one. You can trust him to articulate more of what Peter is intending to say. And to say such things of another brother requires close fellowship. For Peter to say of Silas, he is not just a brother, he is a faithful brother, and I can vouch for him, that really requires close fellowship. To know someone well enough to speak this way requires more than merely observing them from across the room for one hour once a week. And I want to draw your attention to that, especially as you consider nominating apprentice deacons. If you are going to vouch for someone and say that this is a man above reproach, my encouragement is that you know more about them than just seeing them once a week from across the room. It's certain, it's obvious that Peter and Silas shared life together. And so Peter can speak this way of his brother. One of the questions that I want to consider as I think about this is, would anyone say this of me? Maybe should anyone say this 
of me? And I want to encourage you to consider that question yourself. <laughs> Not should anyone think of, this, think of me this way, but should anyone think of you this way? Would anyone say in a letter corresponding to believers on the other side of the planet, this one, this one is a faithful brother. I regard him, I regard her as a faithful sister because we've walked together and I can vouch for their character. I'm glad to say, I'm glad to say that of the guys that we are sending to Long Branch to preach. I'm glad to say to the brothers and sisters over there in that local church who are without a pastor right now, that the six guys we are sending to them right now are faithful brothers. And they're going to stand before that body and they're going to preach the word of God to them faithfully and do it well. I'm glad to say that. Should or would anyone say this of you? That's the question to wrestle with. And as I was thinking all this through, I was reminded painfully that I've been fooled before in this matter. And we all probably have. That we've thought we were walking closely with a brother and that we could say with confidence, this is a trusted brother, this is a faithful brother, this is a faithful sister. And it's proven not to be the case. And, and just recollecting that stings a bit. But we cannot, I cannot let that stop me from living in close fellowship with brothers and sisters. And I'll be honest, that's what I want to do. When, when, I, when I think about the pain that comes with a thinking that I know someone well and that I'm walking with them closely and that I can say this is a faithful brother and sister and then the proof is that is not the case, that makes me want to run away from every brother and sister. That makes me want to run away and live in, in total isolation. And i got to fight against that. Can't let that pain cause me to live in isolation when God has designed that we would live together. So let me encourage you to live in close fellowship with brothers and sisters. Rather than argue about what Silas's role was, whether he was merely the courier or whether he was the secretary, let's acknowledge his connection with, si his connection with Peter and Peter's affirmation of him, that Peter calls him a trusted brother. Read on. It says, For through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. Eight and a half months it's taken us to work through this. I have written to you briefly. And from what I've read about this phrase, it's a pretty standard statement at the end of first century letters, no matter how long they are. Like there are some examples of, of correspondence outside of the Bible, but from the first century, uh, examples of correspondence that go on and on and on forever. And then in the last paragraph, they will say, I have written to you on this matter briefly. Um, so it seems like it's merely a standard form. And so on the one hand, we could say, oh, Peter is just adapting the style of the day. But I think from a biblical perspective, especially with all that we have seen in First Peter, we can understand that Peter is saying, there's a lot more that could have been said here. There's, there's a lot more about all of these things that I could have said to you. It's similar to what John says uh, about the stories he has chosen to tell about Jesus, right? He says, the, the, the books in all the world wouldn't hold all the stories I have to share about Jesus, but I've picked a few out so that you'll believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, right? I, I've picked a few of them out. And so I think Peter would say similarly, there's a lot more I could say to you, but these are the things that I wanted you to hear um, and with preachers, that's always the case, right? There's always more that we could say. There's always less that we could say, right? He says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying. Now, I really want you to lean in here because I think, I think this may be the most important part of the day. He says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Exhorting and testifying. Let me explain those words. Exhorting 
means to urge. It's sometimes translated as beg or appeal or encourage. It's the word that is used to call people to action, right? I've written to you briefly exhorting you. I've written to you briefly calling you to action. The word for testifying means to bear witness or to declare. And that word has the word for witness at its root. And we know that the word for witness in the Greek is where we get our word martyr from, right? So it has that word in the middle of it. When he says, I've exhorted you, I've called you to action, and I've also borne witness. I've also served as a witness. We talked about that word a little while back and talked about how being a witness is more than just knowing the facts. It's more than just seeing something. It's saying it, right? It's knowing the facts and declaring those. And so Peter has said, I'm exhorting you, I'm calling you to action, and I'm also telling you the truth about what I have seen. Wayne Grudem says, Peter says he has been exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, thus summarizing his letter as a combination of moral commands, exhorting, and faithful doctrinal teaching, declaring that this is the true grace of God. Now, when we talk about those two sides, we've been using the grammatical language of indicative and imperative for a while around here. Like for years, we've been talking about the difference between indicative statements of fact, statements of truth, that would be testifying, and we've talked about imperatives. Those are calls to action or exhortation. And Peter has been doing these all throughout the letter. And so what I'm going to invite you to do now is take a little tour with me of 1 Peter. And let's look first for indicative statements. Let's look first for indicatives. What are those statements of fact, those declarations of truth that Peter has said throughout this letter? And he has said some amazing things. So you can look at these on the board. They'll be on the screen. Or better yet, get your pencil out. If you have two colors, that would be best. Use your red one to circle the verses where we're talking about indicative statements and then use your blue one to do imperatives later on. But fly with me. So this, you get the picture right? We're going to fly like super fast through 1 Peter, and we're going to look for all the indicative statements. So start in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There are about five different indicatives in there. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Statements of fact that we rejoice over, right? Look at chapter 2, verse 23. And while being reviled... 
He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself strengthen, establish, confirm, and perfect you. Right? All of those amazing statements of truth. What, what, what a joy to encounter those, right? What, what a pr- praise God. Amen. Praise God for all he is and all he has done for us in Christ. Peter has testified. This is the true grace of God. But Peter has also exhorted us. He's also been consistently calling us to action. So get a different color and mark these imperatives. Mark these calls to action. Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. We're going to talk about that a bunch in a minute. Fervently love one another from the heart. Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, I exhort you as aliens and strangers, abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Chapter 2, verse 6. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. There's like six in those two verses. Six imperatives in just those two verses. Chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Chapter 3, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Verse 8. To sum up, all of you, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We could go on and on and on until we get to the very last one. Greet one another with a holy kiss, with a kiss of love. We'll get to that in a minute. Peter 
has been consistently declaring truth and calling people to action. He says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. We need to understand the relationship between indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives and imperatives must travel together. Paul, in his letters, puts them in order. Paul will spend a certain number of chapters at the beginning of a letter laying out the indicatives. He will lay out doctrine. He will lay out truth. And then, at some point later in the letter, he'll say, therefore. And he'll totally shift gears and start talking about exhortations. He'll start talking about imperatives. He'll say, this is the true grace of God, and now this is how you live. Well, Pastor Peter doesn't do it that way. He's just constantly saying, this is the true grace of God, so this is how you live. And here's some more grace, and here's how, what you should do about it. He's constantly bouncing back and forth. But either way you go, they always travel together. Indicatives and imperatives always travel together. If you were to have indicatives without imperatives, you would get cheap grace. And you would not be faithful to the gospel. You would say that you can be saved from your sins and go on living the way you've always lived. That is not faithful to the gospel. But if you have imperatives, but no indicatives, you get legalism and a workspace righteousness that leaves everyone hopeless. Indicatives and imperatives always travel together, but know this. The indicatives are the basis for the imperatives. The indicatives, the statements of truth about who God is and what he has done for us in Christ and who we are by his grace, those indicatives are the basis for every call to action. The indicative is the root and the action is the fruit. Who God is and what he has done for us in Christ is the basis of all the calls to action. Root, fruit. And listen, every good tree bears good fruit. That's what Jesus says. Every good tree bears good fruit. And so Peter has talked about what it looks like to be a good tree. And then he said, this is how you bear the fruit. He has been written, writing to us briefly to exhort and testify, namely, that this is the true grace of God. He says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Isn't it interesting that at the end of a letter that has contained so much talk about suffering, that Pastor Peter would say, I've been talking to you about the true grace of God. I've been talking to you about the true grace of God. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you as if something strange has happened. This is the true grace of God. Does it seem strange to you that he would talk about this is the true grace of God? The true grace of God, brothers and sisters, includes suffering. And we're going to see why in a minute. The true grace of God, brothers and sisters, includes indicatives and imperatives. John Piper, when he was talking about this text, asked the question, is there such thing as false grace? I'm testifying about the true grace of God. Is there such thing as a false grace of God? And Piper went to Jude chapter 1 to say, I think there is. Look at Jude chapter 1 with me. It says, beloved, sorry, I skipped a bunch of the imperatives, that's why. There were like 10 more, right? And I skipped through them. And now we're to Jude chapter 1. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For, listen to this, certain persons have crept in unnoticed, 
those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Is there a way to preach false grace? Evidently, and that's what's going after in Jude chapter 1, that these ungodly persons have turned the grace of God into licentiousness and denied the masterhood of Jesus. Piper went on to say, just like today, there are grace preachers who do not get it right, and they turn grace into lawlessness. They deny the masterhood of Jesus. And then he summed it up by saying this, Piper says, the true grace of God is pardon from sin to survive and power to stand. The true grace of God is pardon from sin and power to stand. Is both of those, those things. Pardon from sin and power to stand. If one preaches that grace does not bring power to stand, that grace does not bring power to be holy, then Piper argues they are not preaching the true grace of God. If they say, come to Jesus only to be delivered from the penalty of your sin and don't call you also to follow Jesus in holiness, they're not preaching the true grace of God. Because indicatives always come with imperatives. There is a way to live as a disciple of Jesus that honors him. And we are called to that. And Peter's been doing that, right? Peter's been talking about how he has called you out of darkness into light. And then he says, so be holy. Be holy. He's called us to live in a way that is becoming of Christians. I don't want to preach grace that only pardons and brings you no power for living. I want to preach to you the true grace of God that is pardon from sin and power to stand, power to live with holiness. He says, Peter says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And then what's he say? The first imperative, the first imperative of our text. I've been testifying to the true grace of God. I've been talking to you about what the true grace of God is, and now I'm calling you to action in light of it. Right? I've written to you briefly telling you all about the true grace of God. Now, stand firm in it. Do something about it. Stand firm in it. This is the first imperative of today's passage, but one could argue it's the overarching imperative of the entire book. The overarching imperative of the entire book is stand firm in the true grace of God. Remember, this is Pastor Peter writing to these struggling, discouraged, displaced, scattered out Christians in the first century. And he says to them, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And that's what he's saying to us as well. It's not a different message for us today. Many of us are discouraged and struggling and displaced and scattered. Just like those first century believers were. And the message for us is the same. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So brothers and sisters, let's stand firm. In his grace. We need this to be the call of the church. We need this to be the call from pulpits. Stand firm in the true grace of God. And you friends, you can do this in any circumstance. In any circumstance, you can stand firm in the true grace of God. In any political climate, you can stand firm in the true grace of God. In any cultural situation, you can stand firm in the true grace of God. And that's what I'm calling you to. Stand firm where you are in the true grace of God. Don't give up on the gospel. Don't give in to the world. 
Stand firm in the true grace of God. But read on in verse 13. This will not be easy. This will not be easy to stand firm in the true grace of God because you're called to do it in the midst of a hostile world. Look at verse 13. He says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, just like there's a debate about Silas's role, there's a debate about who she is. There are a few scholars that argue super literalistically here that this is a claim that, that Peter is making a reference to his own wife here. They, they say Peter's talking about his wife and that she lives in some obscure Roman citadel that is called Babylon that no one has ever heard of and that he's making a reference to his wife. Not, not a reference to some widely known globally powerful city. Babylon is this obscure outpost of the Roman Empire. I, I, don't, I don't think that's a good argument at all. Rather, it's probably better to see this reference to, to her as figurative, as a reference to the church, the church that is in Babylon, which is probably a figurative reference to Rome, but represents all of the world that is opposed to God, all of the world power that is opposed to God. Most scholars believe that Peter wrote this letter from Rome. And so he is saying to these struggling, scattered Christians who are all over Asia Minor, he's saying, those of us over here who live in Babylon, who are also oppressed, who are also belittled, who are also struggling, but belong to Jesus, are chosen together with you. Those of us over here, we send you our greetings. In other words, we are in this together. There is a parallelism between what Peter says here in the closing and what he said at the very beginning of the letter. Flip back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. As Peter opens this letter, he identifies himself and his audience. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. They are strangers and aliens all over Asia Minor. Here, at the close of the letter, he identifies the church in Babylon, chosen together with you, who sends greetings. So I think the ESV study Bible is right when it says this. Although the Babylon of the Old Testament was in ruins, the reference resonates with the Old Testament where Babylon represents a center of earthly power that is opposed to God. And we know this because some of us have been reading in Jeremiah recently every day, and all of us studied through Revelation not too long ago. In Peter's day, though, ESV Study Bible says that city would be Rome. In Peter's day, Babylon equals Rome. The language of Babylon and chosen forms an inclusio, a literary envelope, with the first verse of the book. The Old Testament background of Babylon reminds believers that though they are exiles, they are elect exiles who will receive the promised inheritance. And, that, and that's what we need to get. That's what we need to get. It would be really helpful for us if we walk away from our study of 1 Peter acknowledging that we too are strangers and aliens. It would be really helpful for us to walk away from our study of 1 Peter to say that we are chosen ones from Babylon. That we live in Babylon. 
we have been using a phrase that comes from an article that we read not too long ago around the office where we say, welcome to Babylon. Like we read things in the news and we say, welcome to Babylon. Like brother, brothers and sisters, this is not Jerusalem. We, we don't live in Jerusalem. We live in Babylon. But we are the chosen ones of God who live there. So stand firm in the true grace of God, even in Babylon. This world is not our home. How many times have I said that in our study of 1 Peter? Dozens at least, right? Dozens of times I've reminded you that this world is not our home. We live in Babylon, but stand firm in the true grace of God, even in Babylon. While we are here, we are to stand firm in the faith. We are to be a witness to the world. We are to live with holiness. So don't be surprised when Babylonians live like Babylonians all around us. Like when you turn on the news, you should be surprised if those things were happening in the church. But you should not be surprised when they happen in the world. Stand firm in the true grace of God, you chosen ones who happen to be from Babylon. Notice also that he sends greetings. There's a connection here that spans the distance between the believers in Rome and the believers scattered around Asia Minor. There's a connection that spans that distance. And we experience that with our brothers and sisters in Central Asia and North Africa and Thailand and all over the place. We can send greetings to one another, even if we can't speak the same language. There's a connection there. And it's a family connection. This is what I want you to see. Peter has called his audience throughout this letter, beloved. He's called them brothers and sisters. He's recognized that they are the family of God. He called Silas a faithful brother. Now he calls Mark his spiritual son. By the way, this is part of the reason why when we read Mark's gospel, we read it as Peter's voice. In a lot of ways, Peter is the influential apostle over Mark's gospel. He considers John Mark his son in the faith. It's a pretty interesting thing there. And now he calls him his spiritual son. The grace of God, I told you this earlier, the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ creates the family of God. That's what happens. We brothers and sisters, are family. So that leads to the next imperative. Greet one another with a kiss of love. I've dreaded this moment since we started in January. I, I want to be obedient to God's word. I want to take imperatives seriously. And so I'm super thankful for R.C. Sproul who says this. Elsewhere, this is called the holy kiss. It was the way ancient Near Eastern people greeted each other at that time and still do today. We are not obligated to continue that custom in our nation. But we may greet one another with holy kiss if we desire. And I'm super thankful for him. So whether we greet one another with a kiss of love, a holy hug, fist bump, whatever whatever physical manifestation that takes, I think the point is about family affection. Family affection. The gospel of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, creates the family of God, and we live with affection for one another. Not mere toleration of one another. We have real affection for one another. Tom Schreiner said, the love between members should be comparable to the love that exists in a healthy family. Although the greetings with a kiss were to be pure and unstained by any kind of sexual lust. If you're going to do that, be careful with it. Peter has called 
the brothers and sisters beloved, and he has exhorted them repeatedly to love each other. And that's what I want to exhort us to as well. Let's love each other. Let's have affection for one another and let's show that affection for one another. Let's grow in that affection for one another. Particularly, let's grow in the depth of our affection with those with whom we already walk closely. So I, I, I love all of you. I, I really do. But there are some of you that I walk more closely with, right? That, that I meet with and we talk about hard things and deep things on a regular basis. That, that uh, in, in a similar way as Jesus had a whole bunch of followers and Jesus had 12 followers and Jesus had three that he was super close with. There are a few of you that I feel like I'm super close with. And what I want to do is grow in depth with that affection. I want that, those relationships to grow even deeper. And you should want that as well. Not, not just with me, but, but with you. you. It's the same with you, right? Like, look around this room. You love everybody in this room, right? But you walk more closely with some of the people in this room, correct? You already have a connection with some of them. And what I'm saying is, go deeper into those relationships. Don't be satisfied to say, oh, yeah, I already, already love these guys a lot. And so we're good. Like, like look to grow deeper in those relationships that are already pretty deep. And the other exhortation I'm going to give to you is to grow in width of affection for those you know less well. And that's harder. That, that's harder for me. Uh, it's not harder for some of you, but it's harder for me to grow in, in the width of affection. But there are some opportunities that we try to put in front of you on a regular so that you can do that. Sunday school is a great chance to go deeper with the people you're already living with. But Sunday night, discipleship classes is an opportunity to grow in affection for more people that you wouldn't see on a regular basis necessarily. Like generationally, there's a gap. Interest-wise, there's a gap. It's a more mixed-up group and gives you an opportunity. So even if you're not super interested in the subject matter that we're studying on Sunday nights, be interested in the people who are studying on Sunday nights. Come and just get to know some people that you might not normally get to know for six weeks and then get a whole new set of them. You're not stuck with them at all. I get a whole new set of people every six weeks and grow in the width of your affection. Sunday night classes are a great opportunity to do that. The Wednesday night schedule change was partly designed to create an opportunity later on Wednesday nights to have some small group meetings like that. To say, hey, I'm, I want to get together with some people I don't really know well and meet with them on Wednesday nights and get to know them a little better. The church picnic is going to be a great opportunity for that. Next Sunday afternoon, you're going to have an opportunity to grow wider in your affection. But that won't happen if you sit with the people you always sit with. That won't happen if you talk with the people you always talk with. So take the initiative. Talk to some new people. You folks always sit over here. Always. You folks always sit over there. Always. You don't have to. You don't have to. The church picnic is an opportunity for that. The parlor, this room that we redid years ago, Joe and his guys worked so hard on it, it's so good. That's part of the design of that room. Go in there and have a cup of coffee and talk with some people. Grow in the depth of your affection for one another and the width of your affection for one another. That's what I'm getting at. And display that affection in appropriate ways by caring about each other, by serving one another, by greeting one another with affection. Kiss of love. 
And then finally, he says, he concludes the letter with a wish of peace. Peace be to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Peace is what they needed. Peter's audience needed peace. They were scattered. They were discouraged. They were oppressed. They needed peace. Friends, we need peace. You and I need peace. And peace comes to all of us. This is the universal guarantee of the gospel. This is what God gives to us in the gospel is peace. Peace be to you all. But there's an exclusivity of it too. He says, peace be to you all who are in Christ. Peace is the universal guarantee of the gospel. But there is only exclusive access to the gospel. It only comes through Jesus Christ. So if you are lacking peace in your life, let me invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. He's the only source of peace. So three applications today. Number four. Number one, this is the true grace of God. These indicatives are truths that we should hold on to. Brothers and sisters, you are chosen. Brothers and sisters, you are beloved. Brothers and sisters, you are redeemed. Brothers and sisters, you are secure. Rejoice in those things. The indicatives of the gospel are about God's holiness. God is holy. He is holy. And man is sinful. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And Christ has died in the place of sinners. Those are the truths, the indicatives of the gospel. But we are called to respond to that with action. Right? The church. You're chosen. You're beloved. You're redeemed. You're secure. So be holy and stand firm and persevere and don't give up. Be a witness. Friends who've gathered with us, God is holy and you are sinful and Christ died for sinners. So repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Even in Babylon. And we live in Babylon. Be deceived. We live in Babylon. Jerusalem's coming. It will come down from above. And all will be made right. But till then, we live in Babylon. And we live as a family here. We are not alone in Babylon. We are not alone scattered around in Asia Minor. We've been given brothers and sisters and they're in this room. And so let's grow in our affection for one another. Let's grow in our fellowship with one another. For the glory of God and for our own endurance. Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Help us to respond rightly to it. To understand and embrace these true statements, these indicative statements of fact, and to obey the imperative commands that we would do what you've called us to do. Pray for men and women and boys and girls who are lost and hopeless without Christ. Pray that you would, in a way that only you can, open their eyes to your holiness, open their eyes to your sinfulness, open their eyes to Christ's sacrifice, and give them, grant them, by your grace, faith to trust in Christ, repentance to turn away from sin. Save them for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, all three of us are here today. All three of us pastors are here today.